my name is Joel Mooneyhan. I'm on the board of elders here at Atlanta Christian Church. Um, I don't preach all the time, but I preach sometimes, and I'm happy to be here today. Um, we go through the lectionary here at Atlanta Christian Church, and this week it falls in Luke's Gospel on the section on the Lord's Prayer. Now, the tricky thing about the lectionary is sometimes it lands on a passage that has a lot of different layers. And so I decided I could either keep y'all here past lunch or kind of zero in on one little part. So if you forgive me, I'm not going to read all of it. Uh, We're just going to do the first little section here from uh, Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 4. Easy enough. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, Teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And so Jesus said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins. For we also ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And lead us not into temptation. And then it continues on from there. The lectionary reading actually goes to verse 13. um, But that can be your homework. So, uh, if you wouldn't mind uh, bowing your heads in prayer with me for a moment. Lord, we thank you for this morning and for the privilege to be here to worship you, to look at your word together, and to hear your word as we go into this week as people who are faithful to you. I pray that in the midst of these moments, you would uh, remove me from this so that it's only your word that is being heard here today. Um, and open all of our hearts and our minds and our souls to receive it and empower us to live it. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Um, I got a couple slides I want to show you. I don't know what order they're in. What what country is that? No one say it. America. Okay. What does this person probably do? Okay. Good. What's that one? Ireland. It's, it's orange, not red. I, you know, it's next. Georgia, yes. What do they do? Soldiers. What's this guy do? Now, how do you know when you look at all of those things, what those people do or what those flags represent? Experience, you just you know that if a person's wearing that, they're probably fighting a fire. There's something about that uniform, and there's something about the colors of a flag that tell you where it comes from, what the person does. So, you got it? Keep that in your head for a moment. Um, we're talking about the Lord's Prayer, and a few years ago, we did a full series, I think it was eight weeks, on the Lord's Prayer from Matthew. And Every single one of these phrases in here has a lot to say. Um, And so I was trying to figure out the best way to approach it because I just kind of kept getting down in the weeds uh, because there's just a lot of really good stuff that you can say. Um, But as I was going through it and kind of took a a day or two to kind of step back and look at it from a higher elevation I just got to thinking about what prayer is, what prayer means, and then also uh, 
what this prayer is telling us specifically, uh, what this passage about this prayer is telling us specifically. Um, and we're in a season in our church where we're talking about different disciplines and things that mark us as people of faith and what we can do as a congregation and as a church family to strengthen ourselves uh, and, and strengthen one another. So I started thinking about prayer, and as I read through here, and it's just in these four verses, it's just so much. It occurs to me that prayer is a discipline. It's not merely conversational. And there's, I often hear people say, prayer is just talking to God. It's a conversation with God, and that's not inaccurate. But I think it's a little reductive because there's a little bit more to it. It is talking to God, but like any relationship, the more time you spend in it, the more time and devotion you spend to communicating with the other person, the better you are at understanding them, the better they are at understanding you. I mean, if you ask, you think about any friendship you have, whether it's a a friend, a spouse, a parent, a sibling, the more you talk, the better you are at, I mean, the closer your relationship is. And when you go long spells of not communicating, when you get back together, sometimes it's difficult uh, to read each other and to understand each other. Um, and in that way, it's, it's not an afterthought. I mean, it, we, we have to really devote ourselves to prayer with God. Uh, I hear people say, I, I pray when I'm in the shower or I pray when I'm in the car on the way to work. Okay, fine. That's, that's good, but is that really the extent of our devotion to the one we call Lord and King and Savior? I mean, pray when you can, I guess, but when I'm reading through this and I'm studying through it, I, I get the sense that there's got to be something more to prayer than just having a conversation. And I've hear, heard people say, when I pray, it just feels like I'm talking to the ceiling, and so I just, I don't pray. It's just frustrating because I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere with it. Okay, well, when I run, I can't go more than a few hundred feet before I'm winded. Okay, Um, that's full confession. It's embarrassing, but it is what it is. And if I were to set myself to being a good runner, I'm not saying I'm going to, but (laughs) if I were to give up because I get winded after a few hundred feet, I'm not going to get any better at it, and it's not going to get any easier. And then the next time I run, if I only do it intermittently, I'm not going to be, uh, I'm not going to be able to get any further than I did. I'm probably going to feel worse. Um, <clears throat> if I want to be a better runner, I have to push through the frustration of it wearing me out, of not feeling like I'm getting anywhere, of not feeling like it does me any good. I sit here and I listen to the band and... I mean, I don't, they're all really, really good. I mean, just for as one musician to another, all of you, it just when I get up here and play, I feel like I'm a little out of my depth. But everybody here is awesome at what they do. Now, if you were to talk to any one of them and say, I wish I could play like that, you make it look so easy, they would probably tell you that, They make it look so easy because it's something that before they get here and play for the 30 or 40 minutes that we're in church together and singing, they've spent hours and hours and hours practicing. A lot goes into it. 
when I studied art, um, you learn a lot about these great artists and, and maybe, like Leonardo da Vinci has just a handful of paintings that you can look at and recognize, but he has thousands of pages of sketches. And all that goes into becoming good at one thing. I love to watch tennis, and I'll watch somebody like Roger Federer, and for two hours, he's just killing it. And I can't do it. It looks like something, I mean, it just some, comes so easy. And then you think about, I mean, how many hours of devotion went into that in practice? I think about some people I knew in seminary. There was a, a professor I had, and one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. He, and I've talked about him here before, but he knew six languages, and two of them aren't spoken anymore. He just, this kind of, but it was interesting because when he spoke, he had a speech impediment. Uh, but not when he read scripture and not when he prayed. And I can remember a really specific uh, chapel service we had and sitting there and he, he opened up the chapel service with prayer and it was this very beautiful and eloquent and it was long. But he just never got, it never got old or dry. It just kept on just blossoming into something incredible. And I remember thinking, he's got to be reading this. Because it just sounds like something you would have written down. And I looked up, and his eyes were shut. And this was just pouring out of him. Because he was a person who was so devoted to his prayer life. He spent so much time uh, digging into it and uh, communicating with God that he could just let it pour out. These things don't happen by accident. Prayer, like anything else, is something that we have to practice to pursue, to devote ourselves to, even when it isn't easy. And we're going to circle back around to that in just a few minutes, so bear with me. But I also want to talk about prayer, especially the Lord's Prayer, as being the mark of a people. If you go back through the Old Testament, there comes a point in Israel's history where they want a king. They don't have a king. All the other nations have a king. God, give us a king. And eventually, in his time, he lets them have a king. Later on, David asked God, let us have a temple. We want a temple. All the other people around here have a temple. Give us, can we have a temple, please? And in God's time, he gives them a temple. And here we have the disciples coming to Jesus and saying, Lord, give us a prayer. John's disciples had a prayer. We want one. And it's important to know that during that time, there were a lot of different messianic movements. Jesus wasn't the only person who was doing what he was doing. But you could tell who someone followed by what they prayed and how they prayed, and how they approach God. And so the disciples look at this and say, we want to know how you pray. They see Jesus doing something very deliberately, and they say, well, we want to be a part of that as well. In each of these scenarios, what we have is God preparing his people for the thing that they're asking for. And it, it, they have to, they're not asking for something trivial. They're not asking for something easy or simple. It may seem like they are, but they're not. 
They have to understand the weight of the request that they're making. And it can't merely be motivated by the fact that other people have it. You really have to understand what it is you're asking for. It has to be motivated by a desire to reflect God more accurately and more fully in the lives uh, that we live to the people around us. To make it clear who the allegiance belongs to. For Israel as a nation, uh, for Israel as a people of faith, and for Jesus' disciples as followers of his. And Jesus' prayer is easy enough to get our heads around on the surface level. But when you really reflect on it, it's actually a very serious and a heavy thing that Jesus teaches us to pray. And if we are serious when we pray it, then it means we're going to have to focus ourselves on God more and more and more. He opens it up by inviting his disciples to pray to God with familiarity. This father word, this Abba father, this is a familial, this is a parental word as like a child approaching their own parent, and by pointing to God's place in heaven, the reverence accorded to his very name, he also reminds his disciples that this is a God who loves you like a parent loves his child. And it's also the very God whose seat is in the heavens and whose name is to be revered. It's a powerful thought to realize that the the most high God who created everything, wants to relate to you the way a parent relates to a child. My dad is a pastor, as a lot of you know, and um, uh, growing up, it was always one of those things where your, your dad's the pastor at uh, Snellville Methodist Church. And people knew me for that. Uh, it's just something that happens when you're a preacher's son. It's a little weird because um, you're running to people at the grocery store or whatever, but it was It was a source of pride to know who my parents were. My mom, who's here today, she was very active uh, with with all of us in school. And uh, all the students, all my classmates loved my parents. And it was always, always enjoyed the fact that my parents were part of what was going on and that people knew who they were because of uh, how kind they were and how involved they were. Um, And it was just really interesting something you don't really think about when you're a kid, but then you kind of look back, that was really great. And you have a sense of pride in that. And then I magnify that times a million because the God of everything wants wants me to have that kind of relationship with him. And this is a radical thing. There isn't much precedent prior to this point of relating to God as a father, as a parent, until Jesus does it. In the Old Testament, you have a, there's a few passages where God speaks of Israel as a son. But there isn't much language of Israel coming to God as a parent. And so Jesus putting this out here is, is a different thing. And it would have caught people's attention. We hear it because we've heard it all our lives and it's just sort of an automatic. But it would have gotten people's attention. What is he saying about God? Addressing father, but also acknowledging his lordship. A king's power is absolute. And so to address God as both a loving, power, a loving father and also a king is a strange combination of roles. And add to that the prayer that uh, it, it asks us to beseech God that his kingdom would come and that his will 
would be done. And that last bit is a request that we have to be careful in understanding. Because if we really pray for God's will, then we have to be prepared for the reality that often our will doesn't line up with God's. And how prepared are we to kind of get out of the way and let God's will be God's will? Instead of praying that God's will would bend to suit our needs. I think a lot of times that's sort of what we end up praying. Whether we mean to or not, I know that sometimes I do it. I sit there and think, am I really praying for what God wants or am I just praying for what I want? It would, be, it would be better to remember that in praying for God's will, it should also be with a heart and a mindset to allow our wills to be shaped in such a way that they align with God's and not the other way around. And it's also a scary prayer because the prayer asks, uh, in Matthew, it expounds into God's will to be done, but it doesn't talk about uh, getting an understanding of what that means. And so you, only, you only need to look to something like the story of Abraham, whose son God asked for as a sacrifice. Uh, he didn't understand it. And in the end, God provided the new sacrifice. Abraham didn't have to give up his son, but he had to be willing to align his will with God's. And that's tough. You take Moses and the Israelites getting ready to escape Egypt. And they're literally between an army coming to kill them and the ocean. And all God says is move forward. He doesn't say, I'm, he doesn't tell him what he's about to do. That's the thing that we, we take that story for granted. It says to Moses, just keep on going. I'll take care of it. It's none of your business how I do it. You just got to keep doing it. Keep on going. Or take Peter. At Jesus' arrest, Peter acts violently to try to stop what's going on. And it's Jesus who effectively uh, says, you've got to let this play out. Everything's going to be okay, but you have to trust that what God's will is doing is something that will end in goodness for you and not disappointment. And you can look in each of these uh, throughout Scripture and even in uh, things throughout history where God calls people to do incredibly difficult things. And I don't mean difficult from just a pragmatic sense of this is a hard thing to do. I mean existentially. Sacrifice your son to me. Walk into the ocean when you're being hunted by an army. Put away your sword and let these people crucify you. The point is that I'm trying to make is that God's will is rarely something that we're going to bring up at a party. God doesn't ask us to do things that are uh, typically easy or that uh, we can get our heads around. And I'm not trying to say that it's always going to be something that brings us trouble. So don't hear me wrong there. But it's usually something that is beyond our understanding. But the good news is that God never, ever abandons us when we replace our will with his. So there's comfort in doing it. And then the next three things that Jesus says almost seem too obvious. Give us each day our daily bread, forgive us our sins, and lead us not into temptation. Duh. If we approach God as a father, then we can safely assume that, yeah, God's going to give us what we need that he's going to be forgiving, and he isn't going to take us to places where we're going to be led directly into sin. 
So why does Jesus even bring this up? And I just personally, I think that there's two reasons for doing this. One, because when Jesus points out the obvious, it's pointing back to the very beginning, to the paternal love of God and to his sovereignty to provide for us, to forgive us, and to protect us, laid out in the verses right before. But two, I think it reminds us of our responsibility to each other. Because when you read the prayer, you have to remi- uh, remember that the, all the first-person pronouns are plural. So it means we're not praying for me, and you're not praying for you. We are praying for each other. Our Father, lead us not into temptation. Forgive us. It's not just uh, singularly about me. It's something that we're joining together and doing. We're not praying. uh, We're praying for ourselves, and we're praying for each other when we join in this prayer. And if you and I are calling the same God Father, and if you and I are addressing him together as Lord, then it means we share a kinship as his children, and we share a citizenship in his kingdom. And if that's the case, then like any good family, like any good kingdom, we have a responsibility to one another. Yes, God provides for us, but there are places in the world from our backyard to across the seas where injustice is done and where people are robbed of that provision, either because they're ruthless and compassionless people or because there are systems in place that favor some people over another. Yes, God forgives, but there are people in the world whose hearts are so hardened by their love of themselves that they have no understanding of the need to be forgiven in the first place. And so they're unable or unwilling to forgive others. And they use that pride as a way to paint themselves as a victim or hold the debts that people owe them as a weapon and victimize others. Derek and I were talking this morning, and just uh, he was telling me about a lecture I need to, I'm supposed to go listen to, um, called "Secular Hell." I can't remember who is it by. Secular Hell lecture? You don't know? He doesn't know either. Okay, I guess I'll have to Google it. Um, but this idea that we as a culture are n- not very forgiving at all, and I mean, if if you're in the public eye and you make one mistake doesn't matter how long ago or how recently, uh, we're done with you, period. And there is no way out. And the lecture kind of goes into, well, how, how, do we, how do these people ever get redeemed? And it, it sort of throws it back on the church. Are we going to be a people who reflect that same kind of forgiveness? Because I mean, it's contingent. There's some sort of contingency in there because if we're not the type of people who forgive, then our hearts are going to be hardened to the point that we're not going to recognize our need for forgiveness. No, God would never lead anyone into a place where they're caused to sin. But there are people who, because they're so disconnected from God in their own hearts or because they're so isolated from others relationally, that their spirits wander into dark places in which the temptation to sin overwhelms their knowledge of the power of God to rescue them. And this is where we come in for each other. Now, I, really, I sincerely believe that 
God has a power to do observable, demonstrable things to, uh, what is going on? There it is. <laughs> Jeff Mallinson. You brought it up. <clears throat> I love our church. Um, where was I? Uh, yes, so this is where we come in for each other. I think throughout history you can see times and places where God has worked in very obvious ways, supernatural ways, to change situations for people. And there are events and circumstances where, to me, just the odds and the probability of them working out the way they do can only point to divine intervention. Not many, but enough. But this prayer, to me, serves as a reminder that I also have responsibility. Because if I'm a child of God, and if I'm a person who prays for God's kingdom to come, then I have to start praying it seriously enough that it will manifest through me and through my fellow believers day to day. And it's also a comfort to know that you all are praying it for me as well. We're praying it for each other. And I've said this before, but when I look at, I see the injustice of the world, and I, I hear people look at that injustice and then look up at God and say, God, where are you in this? What are you doing in the midst of this? I really think if we could hear God's answer, sometimes his answer would be, what are, where are you in it? What are you doing about it? What are you doing to help those in need? What are you doing to help restore relationships broken and in need of forgiveness? What are you doing to protect one another from falling into temptation to sin? There are times when the hands and the feet and the voice of God have to be the hands and the feet and the voice of God of God's people who take seriously the sacredness of his name and the petition that his will be done and that his kingdom come. In a way, to me, it echoes the greatest commandment in that it addresses God in his proper place and then allows him to redirect our love for him and pour it out as love for one another. And in fact, in the next verses, Jesus even uses the example of human relationships as parables for how prayer works between us and God. And I think that's not a coincidence that, God, that Jesus points out human relationships to remind us of how we relate to each other and how God wants us to relate to him and how those things have to start harmonizing with one another if we really want to be serious about this. We know when we see certain colors on a flag, what nation or what state it represents. We know by what someone's wearing on their way to work what it is they probably do. And so in this way, the Lord's Prayer is a flag that we fly. It's a uniform that we wear. It's something that marks us apart as people of God. Who we pray to shows who we serve. How we pray shows what, what are our priorities. If we're serious about it, it becomes something that signifies to others who we serve and why we serve them. And as children of the Most High, as citizens of God's kingdom, it's something that unites us in our devotion and also in our efforts to see his kingdom unfold before us as our love for him is magnified and poured out back to one another. Amen?
That's a lot. And just sort of scratching the surface, I feel like. I mean, I, I wrote a lot of notes and just thought no one's going to want to hear all of this because it's so much. Um, so, I mean, go read it and just think on it and study it. Um, but I didn't want to leave today on just purely theological theory because um, it just, it's just a lot. Uh, so I wanted to end today on something a little more practical. Prayer is something that in my time in ministry, I've, I've gotten a lot of questions about. And in my own personal life, it's something I've struggled with. There are times when I'm better at it than others. So at my best, I think I have something to say. And at my worst, I think we can all help each other. Um, but I did want to offer a couple things to you as just steps to take that might help you in your prayer life and uh, make it a little easier to get into it. Because I do think it's important. Uh, it's something that I think we under understate a lot of times, and especially in our very modern and empirical and scientific mindsets. <clears throat> One of the things I would say is to schedule a time and make a place. It's, it's interesting, Luke, in the very beginning, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place, which means Jesus went somewhere to pray. He didn't just do it where he found himself that, that morning or that afternoon or that evening. He had gone to a place for that purpose. That's what he set that place aside for. We don't know where it was, but it was clearly something that Jesus had gone to do. He'd gone there for that purpose. So find a place and find a time, even if it's in a closet at 10 o'clock at night, just something. Um, in Matthew, when Jesus talks about going into your closet and shutting the door when you pray, it's couched in this teaching about not making your prayer a show before other people. But I really think that there's also a practical element of if you go into a closet and shut the door, you have to go into a closet and shut a door. You might as well make use of your time while you're there. And I think Jesus is trying to say something also about the deliberateness of what prayer ought to be. It's not an afterthought. It is a discipline. Be mindful of your posture. And this seems like such a kind of an odd thing, but kneel when you pray. There's a lot of information out there and studies that show that what your body language is doing while you're in any sort of activity will kind of set your mindset. Uh, you're approaching a king. Kneel. It'll get you in a better headspace at least. But show some humility. Uh, if I pray in a way that's too comfortable, that I just I can't focus. So doing something like kneeling kind of helps me because my body's in a different posture to focus my mind on what I'm doing. And like I said, we're approaching a Lord. It'd probably do us good to act that way. Um, little side note: when I studied art in college, one of the things I did to improve my drawing chops was to buy sketchbooks of other artists and copy them into my own. And it's just this discipline of copying something that someone else has done way better than I can do it. 
and just kind of learning how to move my hand in that way so that I can do it with the same type of skill or at least approach that level. If you, when you pray, if you struggle with what to say, then go to the Psalms or go to Jesus' prayers throughout the Gospels. Uh, Paul writes down some great prayers. Go to the prayers of the great saints in the church. You can buy a book of common prayer. If you have trouble with what to pray and how to pray and what to say while you're there, then it's, nothing says prayer has to be uh, novel and brand new. Read through somebody else's prayers. Let those become yours. It's going to please God anyway. And a lot of these prayers, you'll find that first and foremost, people pray for God's will and then pray for, uh, to receive his power to uh, carry that out and to uh, the wisdom to kind of accept and learn from it and go with it. The more you pray for the will of God, the more you will know what to pray for. So pray for God's will, pray to know God's will, and then as you pray, you're going to start learning that your prayers become kind of a feedback loop, and you'll know. Write your prayers down, not just as like a journaling technique. I mean, it's good, but just do something else to engage. Uh, I find that when I find my mind wandering about anything, if I write it down, it focuses. Or pray out loud. You might sound like a maniac to somebody if they overhear you, but, I mean, just do something to engage more than just your mind so that it's not, uh, your mind isn't wandering. Don't forget that prayer is also listening. That's one of the hardest parts for me. Learn to be at peace with the silence. I'm not saying that God's going to audibly speak. He might. Certainly, I wouldn't rule that out, but that's not the point. The point is that if you're not used to the idea of listening and you don't get into the discipline of also listening, then you won't really understand when or how God responds in his time. And his time is something we have to be patient for. So learn to understand prayer is also listening for God, even if it's listening in silence, just that patience. God's response doesn't come how we want it, when we want it, in the shape that we want it. Uh, We have to be patient enough to listen for it. And invite others to pray with you and for you. I think that's probably one of the most important things we can do for one another. Um, Make it something that you share with somebody else. And make it something that they share with you. And as you do, I think you'll start to see in your own life and see in the lives of others what God is really doing to respond to our prayers. But if we're just kind of keeping it to ourselves and we're not sharing it and we're not uh, sharpening one another, we lose something in that. The Lord's Prayer is a plural prayer. It is us praying together. So find someone or find a few people to pray with and to pray for and just see what happens. To close out today, I want to kind of lean into some of these ideas uh, and I'm going to pray for you one of my favorite prayers written by Thomas Merton uh, from something he wrote called Thoughts in Solitude. Now, it's written from the first person singular, but I'm going to pray it for us together. Um, So if you would, join with me in this, and then we will close out in some worship. Let's pray. 
Our Lord God, we have no idea where we're going. We don't see the roads ahead of us. We cannot know for certain where they will lead. And nor do we really know ourselves. And the fact that we think we are following your will does not mean that we are actually doing so. But we believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And so we hope and pray for that desire in all that we are doing. And we hope and pray that we will never do anything apart from that desire. And we know that if we do this, you will lead us down the right road, though we may know nothing about it. Therefore, we will trust in you always. Though it may seem that we are lost and in the shadow of death, we will not fear, for you are ever with us, and you will never, ever leave us to face our perils alone. We pray these things in your name.